Broadcasting to New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Sydney, London, and around the world. This is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live on 101.3 KPCG and online at kpcg.fm. Coming up on today's program, a look at some headlines that are pretty interesting. And also, we're going to take a look at uh, a really exciting discovery. You've probably read a bit about this at the uh, trumpet.com, but there's a feature piece on it today, Unearthed, another inspiring biblical artifact. So we're going to take a look at that right up from the trumpet.com as well. That and more coming up on this Thursday edition of Trumpet Radio Live here on 101.3 KPCG. This is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live on 101.3 KPCG. We are online also at kpcg.fm. We have a live link at thetrumpet.com. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you can do that at kpcgfm. Any emails you'd like to send, send those along to comments at kpcg.fm. Occasionally I get a LinkedIn request mm. at comments at kpcg.fm. I, I get those all the time on my yeah. personal email, even though I haven't used LinkedIn in like four years. Yeah, I get them. I mean, personally, I get them on personal emails, but we, like the radio station got one. <laughs> That's <laughs> funny. There's several, so I was like, hmm, interesting. Uh, LinkedIn's an interesting uh, site. Yeah, I have, I've, I have a profile up there, but uh, for those that are always very interested in my profile, which would be none, I'm sure, <laughs> uh, but I haven't updated that thing in years. Right, same. So, but, you know, uh, it, some people use it quite a bit. It's one of those... Uh, One of those social media networking sites that uh, sometimes can be effective. Uh, But again, like we talked about a while back, you know, you can also buy your likes or your recommendations and all those things so we can get a little bit, uh, it can be a little bit doubtful as to how accurate some of those are. That's true. It seems like for me, the most beneficial part of LinkedIn is actually the email that they send out with these really helpful articles about, you know, being effective and productive in your job and things like that. Those are actually some really, really helpful articles that I've actually benefited a lot from over the years. You wouldn't think that that would be the main attraction uh, to a social media site, but uh, that's a lot better to me than connecting with other people even. Yeah, they always want you to congratulate somebody on their anniversary of working and so forth. So all those emails that come in, it'd be interesting to look at the numbers of how many emails that people get every day are relevant to them versus spam. Probably is the same. <laughs> well, it's probably even a greater ratio. I was going to say of the actual physical mail you might get at your mm-hmm. home. You know, how often is it relevant versus just junk mail? Very rarely is it relevant. It's almost a surprise. And we're like, hey, this is a real. I actually want this <laughs> yeah. because a lot of the mail they make it. They they try to doctor it up to make it look like it's something you want to open. You know, oh, this is urgent, or they make the the font look like handwriting. That you know, every trick in the book they've tried. And uh, so I've become numb to it. <laughs> I it really, I really have to. It really surprises me if it's actually. And occasionally, a letter will show up, which is that, that almost knocks you on your back. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody wrote a letter. <laughs> I've actually made the mistake of thinking that an envelope wasn't important and not opening it for a couple months, and then realizing it's really important paperwork about taxes or about like my wife's visa to, to stay in the country uh, all these all these things that look like any other spam envelope 
and I guess that's the whole point of the spam, isn't it? To make it look like it's important enough to open. Obviously, the, the I guess the, the downside is that people might miss the important stuff. Yeah, I wonder if that would hold up in a court of law. Say if you missed a deadline and you say, hey, look, it looks like all the other junk mail I get. It got me off jury duty one time, actually. Oh, really? I didn't even open it for like three months, and I, I called them up and told them. They're like, oh, we don't care. We're not going to reschedule it at this point. Wow. Huh. <laughs> Not recommending people do that, mind <laughs> no. you, but that's just an interesting uh, side note. A couple of headlines to look at today. This one's uh, this first one's really interesting. Uh, President Trump, he's a he's a wheeler and a dealer, and I don't know if anybody really knows what side he comes down on on some issues. So this this has got some people a little nervous. Maybe uh, it's about the gun debate. President Trump kept lawmakers guessing Wednesday about the extent of new gun legislation he would support and sign into law. In a televised bipartisan meeting with members of Congress in response to the Parkland, Florida school shooting that left 17 people dead, Trump put forth a number of policies related to gun control. So they're just talking about some ideas here. Trump repeatedly suggested guns just be taken from citizens if officials felt they should, even if Americans had not violated any laws. He said the police saw that uh, he was a problem, this Florida shooter, they didn't take any guns away. Now that uh, now that could have been policing, but they should have taken them away anyway, whether they had the right or not. Later in the meeting, Vice President Pence attempted to walk those comments back a little bit, <laughs> explaining the process of how states could take steps to confiscate guns from dangerous individuals that would go through the courts and observe due process. But he was interrupted by President Trump. He said, or, Mike... Take the firearms first and then go to court. That's another system. Take the guns first, go through due process second. So that's got uh, some of the gun uh, rights advocates pretty nervous. Yeah, there's a lot of discussion about whether police can go into people's homes and confiscate guns like that. The Broward County Sheriff, who was at that CNN town hall, actually proposed an expansion of allowing that to happen. But I actually saw this morning, Dana Lash was, and it is Lash, by the way, Dana Lash, the NRA spokeswoman, was saying that, um, she was on the news and she was saying that Florida law already allows people, or already allows the police to go in and take guns from people who are writing actual threats against other people. And Nicholas Cruz was doing this under his actual name. There's only eight Nicholas Cruzes that have the same spelling in the entire country, so they could have easily tracked down who it was and taken away guns, taken action. It's actually a felony to write a threat against somebody else in the state of Florida. So maybe that part of it's getting overlooked, that it's already in the law, and the law just wasn't being enforced the right way. It's a very good point. That before they talk about new laws, maybe that would be the best thing to do is say, okay, what laws are already in place and then why weren't they followed? And I think that point's been brought up a few times on the Trump Daily Radio Show as well. There are a lot of really uh, probably helpful laws already on the books, but they're just not being enforced enough. So everyone wants a new law in response to something, but but that would be good. Take a time out, go back and say what laws are already there, and then where was the failure in, in executing those laws? Because we've talked about it a lot already about just the staggering amount of incompetence from that police department and it starts at the top with the poor leadership going on there despite what he might say about his leadership it's been pretty clear that four deputies stood outside the school and just waited while the shooting took place uh then he's 
asking for more police authority to take guns away when they did visit his home 39 times. So why didn't they ever take guns away any of those times? Then when they have clues going to the FBI and to local law enforcement that he's actually writing out threats to other people, saying he wants to watch them bleed, saying he wants to be a professional school shooter. These are all pretty obvious red flags and the law allows you to act on those things and they just never did a single time uh why can't anyone in law enforcement actually take full responsibility and maybe even pay the repercussions for it have to resign or whatever else yeah it's a very interesting debate that continues to go back and forth so we'll see what happens here with this uh, gun (laughs) process I mean, nobody likes the idea, obviously, of, of just having things confiscated without the due process. But um, I, I wonder, too, if it's just a matter of the amount of work it would take for the due process. I mean, because I, I was thinking about it from, say, a, a police officer standpoint or a police uh, uh, station. Uh, and I don't, I don't know all the details, but, I mean, how many people do you think within a certain range w- could potentially have guns taken because they've done something? I mean, I mean maybe that number is really high. And so it would be interesting to hear their perspective on it, like uh, how practical is it for you to actually follow the rules and go to all these different people's houses that are making threats or whatever. I mean, the Internet, there's a lot of stuff out there and take their weapons. Is it a matter of they just don't want to or is it like forget it, there's no way we could even begin to do this? I'd be interested to hear their their honest perspective on that as well, maybe from a, maybe from a police uh, chief that's not under the limelight right now, but just sort of uh, – hey, we could do it, but this would be really hard to do. Yeah, we've all seen (laughs) comments from foul-mouthed YouTubers uh, threatening other people, and you don't usually take those things seriously um, because you don't, people don't know where where other commenters live. Uh, the thing with Nicholas Cruz was that he was actually writing threats to people he knew, people at the school, um, you know, posting on on youtube that you're going to be a professional school shooter does sound a little bit different from uh you're you're a jerk and i i don't like you that much which is what a lot of youtube comments say uh so it it's kind of it is kind of an interesting balance because the police did show up at his house a bunch of times it wasn't like the only thing nicholas cruz was doing was posting dumb comments online Uh, but that was one of the many signs and it seems like there should be a a certain scale to where the more someone is sticking out like that through their comments or uh, through their social media posts where they're always just holding guns and acting acting like a thug those types of things should be taken into account there i wonder too uh how much the fear of profiling uh factors into maybe some of these situations where they know they could they should go do something but they don't want to be accused of profiling i mean we've seen that uh well in a lot of places but i mean even in airports we probably many of us have experienced it i suppose where you know they randomly pull people out of line and you think well but that person looks a little more suspicious than this other one but but it seems like they're so they're so afraid of being accused of profiling i mean even in uh what was it new york these these ladies just won a lawsuit where they made them take off some of their Islamic headdress because they needed mug shots. And because they made them take that off, they said, well, it was a violation of their religious rights or whatever, and they all got about 18000 <laughs> bucks on. or something. So, you know, they have the police have to think about that, too. To, I mean, because you can drive around. I was thinking about people with, like you said, that would be a threat. 
you just drive around town, you see a few people that you think, well, that looks a little suspicious, mm-hmm. but yet, you know, for the officers, I imagine they have to be careful on who they pull over and why they pull them over and that type of thing. Yeah, and in the, in the case of the Parkland school shooter, too, why wasn't his uh, horrible school record taken into account? Why wasn't zero tolerance put in place there uh, to maybe keep him away from other kids and get him out of that environment a little bit faster? I mean, they they basically just kept putting up with him fighting everyone he saw and making a huge mess whenever, you know, if a teacher ever passed out ice cream, he would just throw the entire gallon all over the room. I mean, this was a, a pretty crazy individual that needed some help, and he was basically crying out for it, and no one bothered to do a thing about it that is a good question about profiling uh i believe it was carolyn glick recently who raised that point about how israel has armed guards at every school uh they only have one or two entrances and exits to every school so they're pretty pretty well secure in that way uh but also they unapologetically profile they if you look like you might be a Muslim, they they will they will pull that person aside every single time, and that that is obviously offensive to a lot of people. But political correctness, uh, prioritizing people's feelings over the actual safety of other people, is is just a horrible a horrible set of priorities there. Yeah, you with, without being able to take action on things that look suspicious, at least at least investigate it, then people are kind of. Uh, well, you're at the mercy of the criminal element, you know, and so anyway, it's going to be an interesting ongoing discussion that they're going to have, and uh, th- there's a lot that factors into it, so we'll see how it how it proceeds. Yeah, and profiling would be a lot different here anyway. It wouldn't just be focused on uh, one religion. The Jews are in a unique position where the entire Arab world almost uh, hopes for its extinction. Here, obviously, we face a lot of different types of threats and it doesn't even really matter so much what someone's race or other background is but if they are doing things and if they're raising dozens or hundreds of red flags something has to be done about it and you can't be afraid of offending somebody or facing a lawsuit the the police have to be free to do their jobs right behavioral profiling which i think is what exactly everyone yeah. would would think is probably a good idea unless several of the people that are behaving badly <laughs> Uh, speaking of weapons, something more serious even than a gun is uh, uh, nuclear weapons. The Sun has a write-up today about uh, Vladimir Putin there in Russia. The title is The Unstoppable Bomb. Vladimir Putin says Russia is developing an unstoppable nuclear cruise missile, which cannot be intercepted by any anti-missile system on Earth. Why would he need that? The newly developed intercontinental ballistic rocket with unlimited range was one of several unveiled by the Russian leader in his State of the Nation address in Moscow. They included a nuclear-powered cruise missile, a nuclear-powered underwater drone, and new hypersonic missile, which apparently have no equivalent. Footage shown during his speech apparently shows the new unstoppable missile heading toward the United States as he promises to neutralize America's missile defense. Well, come on now. He's actually showing this this mock footage of them (laughs) destroying us. Russia remained a nuclear power, but no one wanted to listen to us, Putin said. He's 65, by the way, getting a little older now. He says, listen to us now. He said the intercontinental rocket, known as the uh, Avangard, is capable of traveling 20 times the speed of sound and strike like a meteorite, like a fireball. It's amazing that this isn't more taken more seriously. I mean, at least as far as the headlines go, it was a little blurb here and there, but I'm like, uh, 
look at what they're doing over there. <laughs> is, that, is that making anybody nervous? And why are they building these weapons? Yeah, apparently his video presentation, I think it was actually earlier today maybe, or maybe it was yesterday, uh, but earlier today in terms of being over there in Russia. Uh, but it it actually had like a video presentation and it wasn't a very long clip, but it was like an overhead shot of the state of Florida and some, uh, I guess, some astute uh, internet sleuth put the state of Florida from the video presentation side by side with the state of Florida on Google Maps, and it looks exactly the same. So that's how they found out uh, that he was actually showing missiles bombing Florida, which, by the way, is where President Trump has his Mar-a-Lago retreats. Yeah, that's really interesting. And that's, I mean, obviously, I don't know what his exact thinking was there, but he had, that's where the school shooting was, too. Not that he was maybe thinking about mm. that, but I, I do think one thing we could think about is, okay, we're really focused on some of these school shootings, which they're very serious issues, but uh, you drop one of these, you don't have a Florida anymore. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we're, we're talking about much more serious weapons. And so they're, the international community is, uh, uh, you know, not happy with them because, you know, he's going to spark this new arms race or whatever. Well, they're late to the party. There's been an arms race going for a long time. <laughs> exactly. It's still going. We've mentioned it before, but these different nations, whenever they do some sort of nuclear test or they show off their firepower, they're never doing a demonstration against one of their allies, like, say, you know, China saying, look what we could do if we decided to blow North Korea off the map. They're always doing that against a hypothetical or an actual enemy iran always pretending like it's sinking u.s battleships and things like that so russia targeting florida just shows the way that those people think about us we have to take that threat seriously and it's also important to note that uh vladimir putin was also lamenting the the loss of the the soviet union he was talking about how he actually gave a lot of statistics. He said Russia has lost 23.8% of its land, 48.5% of its population, 41% of its GDP, 39.4% of its industrial potential, and 44.6% of its defense capabilities. So he wants them to return to a time when they were never more hostile to America during the Cold War when they they threatened to wipe us off the map. He wants to go back to a time like that. That's not a leader that we can work with too easily. The glory days, as he sees it. Yeah. I wonder, too, if it, if using Florida, I wonder if that's a shout-out to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Oh, that's a good point. Cuba's yeah. right there off that coast, not too far. And uh, they're basically an aircraft carrier. And, of course, if you know about that Cuban Missile Crisis, those weren't Cuban missiles. Those were Russian missiles that were there. And I wonder if that's a little bit of a veiled shot as well. Well, yeah, there's a lot of uh, possible meanings there with the, the president going down there, the shooting that was recently down there, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, just the fact that it's America in general, and the Russians have always hated America, it seems. Uh, so they know what they're doing. They're not just putting up a video presentation and and, and then just claiming later that they meant nothing by it. They're not even trying to deny that they meant something by that. Yeah, amazing. Well, so that's something to keep your eye on. Of course, there's a lot at thetrumpet.com about that. Uh, Russia and China and Prophecy is one of the books that uh, it's very important. Uh, of course, Russia has been involved in Syria, the ongoing Syria, the war in Syria. North Korea is involved. They've been caught sending chemical weapons over there at the same time that they're participating in the Olympics. And everyone's like, well, maybe they're being nicer. They're, they're sending chemical weapons. 
they deny it, of course, but uh, to to Syria and that they're being used on the Syrian people. They had a whole feature on 60 Minutes this last week about the some of those uh, people being killed by the chemical weapons over there and a lot of children. And they had all the footage. It was really horrible. And they made the point in the presentation that uh, Assad goes after hospitals because he wants to make sure that there's no way for people to get help. And then he goes after the kids because it's the next generation. So you see the video of these kids just dying, choking to death out there in the streets. This is happening as we we have our lives over here. Uh, Syria is getting absolutely obliterated. That war has been going on since 2011. 400,000 people have been killed so far. No end in sight. That's and that's all just for one leader to keep his power. He's not and like you said, he's not just killing people who are trying to overthrow his regime. He's just he's just slaughtering civilians and children and he doesn't even care about it. It's just it's just a demonic attack on his own people. Um it's got to be one of the most evil leaders in history. Yeah, it's terrible and and this Syria's kind of become this a proxy war for a lot of different powers. Uh, this write-up here in uh, Time Magazine says that the dizzying array of overlapping and competing conflicts and alliances has become unmoored from the war that began in 2011. Most of the conflicts that you see now have nothing to do with Syria per se. They're just happened to. They're just fighting there. Of course, like Israel's in the mix a little bit, and Iran is in the mix, and Russia's in the mix, and the U.S. is in the mix. North Korea is somewhat in the mix. Uh, and all these things. And two, you know, just the fact that you see um, the Syria, Syrian people being killed with chemical weapons, chlorine bombs and other things. Still, think back to President Obama's red line, right? And then he walked that back and said, well, we're not going to do much about that. And then Vladimir Putin came in, saved the day, and they took all the chemical weapons away. No more chemical weapons. Well, they're still using them. You know, how, how come there's not more people looking back at that and saying, well, what about... You know, that red line that President Obama, you know, put out there and then walked away from and then let Russia do what they wanted. And and, uh, people are still dying there. Those children are still dying there. So it's so interesting because you have a school shooting here in the U.S. and all the politicians come out, including the former president, and they tweet all who are so sad and all this. Well, there's children in Syria being gassed, you know, and the, the footage is all over the place. You can watch 60 Minutes last week. And a lot of that goes right back to our inaction. So... You know, it 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 just seems to be pretty hypocritical. Yeah, that non-existent red line in Syria should be added to Barack Obama's list of scandals. It's never mentioned, but the fact that four hundred thousand people have died because he let Russia take over the region—a really highly strategic region, by the way—if you just look on the map, it's at the crossroads of Asia, Africa, and Europe. It's it's right in the middle there. Uh, Syria is, and and they just let Russia take it over as if Russia was going to do anything worthwhile there. We knew at the time that he was just going to go in there and pop up, prop up the, the Assad regime. It wasn't like it was a secret what their intentions were. And because Russia has the most control there now, uh, that, that regime is still in power seven years later when they should have been toppled a long time ago. Yeah, the, this uh, write-up says that U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson will be in the region until February 16th, so I guess that's uh, past here, to discuss uh, issues including the conflict in Syria, but the U.S. is not the country best positioned to pull Syria back from its various fronts. That would be Russia, the sole party that has uh, open communications with every player involved. 
the prospect of losing its foothold in the Middle East, and the reality of Russian citizens colliding with U.S.-backed forces on the battlefield may prompt Vladimir Putin to try to rein in the situation. We'll see. He doesn't appear to want to rein anything in. But at this point, they say it may be beyond even his means to draw out the disease. Oh, well, I doubt, I doubt that. I think he's, he's keeping the pot going. You know, they act like these guys couldn't go in there and change some things pretty quick. You mean to tell me if Russia didn't back Assad that he would continue on? You know, so it's, it's very interesting. But anyway, you do see the lack of U.S. influence now, and a lot of that dates back to the former administration. And then here comes Russia, lo and behold. You know, as the U.S. pulls back, these other powers come in like we talked about yesterday. And it is it is like we said yesterday where uh, basically apocalyptic violence always takes over what was it uh singapore we were talking was it singapore yeah uh where as soon as um was it america that left or britain that left it was yes. britain yeah, yeah britain left that area and japan took over two months later and all of a sudden you just have all this savage blood bloodshed is that what it was when britain was there is that really how the world is when america and britain have outposts in these different regions Obviously not. We see the clear difference, uh, yet you have so many historians and academics and, and people in the media today acting like America's influence throughout history, Britain's influence, has just basically been a negative, as if we've been killing people like uh, what's been happening in Syria with 400,000 people being killed. Yeah, go ask the Syrian civilians. Who, who would you rather run the show here, Russia or the U.S.? I'm sure they would say the U.S., as long as they actually did it and actually kept things in line. I mean, Assad maybe wouldn't feel that way, but uh, well, who cares what he thinks? <laughs> There's a lot of people being destroyed over there. Well, the media in that case could actually, uh, our media, which generally undermines a lot of our war efforts, it would definitely shine a light on America if we were backing up a regime that's using chemical weapons against its own people. So that's why America is basically restrained from any any tyrant doing something like that because the outrage in this country would just be overwhelming. Yeah, it would be. So anyway, it's an ongoing situation there and something to keep in mind, and we've had quite a few write-ups at thetrumpet.com about that. Uh, here's an interesting note from Reuters. You may have noticed that um, you don't see as many bees around as you used to. At least I feel that way. When I was a kid, it seemed like there were bees everywhere, and now if I see one, it's sort of a rare event. Uh, But this is uh, coming out of Europe. They say pesticides put bees at risk. European watchdog confirms. So I don't think this is too surprising, but they've been doing some research into it. Wild bees and honeybees are put at risk by three pesticides from a group known as neon ecotinoids. That's ballpark. (laughs) (laughs) I should have looked that one over a little more before I tried to say it. Europe's food safety watchdog said on Wednesday, confirming previous concerns that prompted an EU-wide ban of on use of the chemicals. And so they went through and they looked at the, the effect of some of these uh, pesticides, and they found that in a lot of cases it does affect bees. And, it, well, why would that be surprising? They're poisons. They kill things. And if a, if a bee's coming to try to pollinate plants and it's getting all of this poison into it, obviously it's going to cause problems. So... Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of pesticides being used uh, every, everywhere from people's lawns to uh, actual crops and so forth. And uh, so bees are at risk. I, one thing I've always noticed uh, in our neighborhood, a lot of people spray their lawns to get the weeds out. And I don't know what they use exactly, but it smells really, really bad. So I don't do it uh, for a variety of reasons. But in any event, I do happen to notice that a lot of times when the birds and the squirrels and the 
different wildlife, they also may want to be on my yard or yards where it hasn't been sprayed. So I have to I have to think that the animals have a little bit of knowledge there as to where to go and where not to go based upon the chemicals or lack thereof. Yeah, and, and bees are essential to uh, growing plants and trees, like you said, by or plants and flowers and other things by just pollinating like that. And I've always wondered how pesticides can selectively murder certain weeds, but not the grass and, and not the important plants and not, in this case, uh, the bees. And apparently the pesticides aren't as uh, selective as we thought. Well, yeah, I'm not an expert on it, but I have seen a few reports and documentaries and it seems like the chemical companies they develop a seed uh that they modify it genetically to where the poison won't react with it in the same way as will everything else but then you're looking at everything else being Mm. obliterated in some cases so there's probably more to it and I i don't know all the science but that's there's some documentaries out there that are pretty interesting about that and how they really the chemical companies control the food production because their genetically modified seeds are the ones that work with the chemicals. And so there's, there's there's a lot of money involved there. Uh, but like you said, it's, you know, if it's poison, it's poison. It's not going to be poison for one thing and good for something else. It's, it's going to have a lot of issues with it. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's, you feel bad for the, the destruction of some of those, those, um, well, just part of that ecosystem, because if you don't have those bees, you do have other problems. So, yeah, anyway. that's, that's quite a racket they have going there with oh, yeah. modifying the seeds uh, to fit the pesticides and then making pesticides that will not hurt those types of seeds. I mean, it's like it just it's a cycle that goes round and around and around um, and probably the well-being of a lot of different wildlife is not taken into consideration too much. Yeah. The one thing I don't know, I didn't used to care so much about this, but one of the things that I love to see now is one of those giant um, bumblebees and let's see them land on a, a plant and the whole plant like tips over because they're so big I just saw and you just don't see them as much as you used to at least I don't so whenever I see one of those I think wow that's really that's something I'll take my time and watch that is that the big lazy queen bee going for a rare fly around <laughs> I don't know I don't know but you know I think they get it on their uh the, the different hairs on their body so you see one of those there's like a tanker yeah they're like you're gonna get a lot of pollen and you're going to do a lot of good things <laughs> flying around like that. So, uh, And that's one of the things here in Oklahoma, too. Unfortunately, uh, I think we have some similarities to Australia in just that there's a lot of deadly creatures, it seems like, or potentially deadly creatures. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't see a lot of honeybees, but I see a lot of those nasty hornets that'll sting you a lot. And just there's nothing of value to them, to my knowledge. I don't know what they do that's good. But uh, I like the friendly bees, not the the angry deadly hornets oh that those are just excruciating whenever those things sting uh years ago i was doing some weed eating and uh one i think one stung me like up on my arm and so i dropped the machine that i was using and then i think another one stung me up around the neck and so then i swiped and my my hat went flying off my my uh safety glasses went went somewhere i don't even think i found them but it's just like you can't even control how your body responds almost when you get stung by those things. At least with bees, from what I understand, most of them at least uh, can only sting once. And so they're not going to sting unless they feel like there's an actual 
legitimate threat. They're not just going to do it gratuitously. <laughs> right. You you pretty much have to step on it accidentally yeah. or something like that. But no, those hornets they, they're out looking for trouble. And, <laughs> they uh, sure are. They can sting you a bunch of times in a row, as I've I've experienced, unfortunately. So they're always around, and they've got that exoskeleton mm-hmm. to where you can't just swat them and kill them. Like you gotta. Oh yeah, you gotta get serious. <laughs> yeah, those are those are some serious creatures. Those those might be some of the ones that uh, Satan altered the, you know, like the the nature of them so that they become a curse. I don't know. They yeah, they're definitely a curse, and I don't know what the benefits are if there are any. Uh, here's here's one other note. Uh, this is uh, something that may affect you if you're out in California, but who knows? It might be coming to other places. From CBS Los Angeles, uh, Montclair bans distracted walking. You can get a ticket for distracted walking out there. Walking while talking on the phone or listening to music via earbuds or headphones can now earn pedestrians a $100 fine in Montclair. The small bedroom community, where are all the kitchens? <laughs> About 30 miles east of Los Angeles, banned distracted walking while crossing an intersection, an ordinance that went into effect this year. According to the ordinance, pedestrians cannot cross the street or highway while engaged in a phone call viewing a mobile electronic device or with both ears covered or obstructed by personal audio equipment like the over-the-ear headphones and earbuds. There are, however, exceptions for 911 calls, medically prescribed hearing aids, <laughs> and emergency first responders who are on duty. Uh, city officials say pedestrians now account for 15% of all vehicle-related fatalities. A first violation will cost you $100. It doubles if caught again within a year. If still within that same 12-month period, subsequent violations can cost as much as $500 each time. Just won't learn your lesson. <laughs> Take those earbuds out. So I don't know. It, I can understand why you wouldn't want to have distracted people walking across the street, but it would be interesting to see how they would actually enforce that. Yeah, it would be pretty hard. It's This is one of those sad instances where you almost just have to legislate away people's irresponsibility. It It shouldn't be that hard to understand that, you look both ways before you cross the street. You actually look while you're crossing the street. You shouldn't have uh, something that's inhibiting your ability to hear your surroundings too. I, I noticed that uh, years ago, one time I tried to put in earbuds while driving, but it's it's actually quite dangerous. I learned that within a couple minutes because it's illegal. Ever, I think. Yeah, yeah. I didn't even know that at the time, but it's like you you so all of a sudden you you just have a lot of your senses blocked out, which you need them when you're operating a vehicle. So uh, it's really good that they're trying to stop people from being so irresponsible. But some of these things should just be common sense to where you don't have to make a law about it. It's interesting. I have seen quite a few people, uh, younger people especially, obviously on their phones, but then now even going through stores with earbuds in, mm-hmm. I think I think listening to music or maybe they're on a phone call, I don't know. But uh, and, and it's interesting because it, it's sort of this weird mixing of being out in the world, the real world, mm-hmm. but still away in your own little world. And uh, you do have to wonder, just, uh, just there is some safety concerns there, but also just... I don't know. It's like uh, people are trying to um, block out reality and just stay in their own little world while they try to physically move about other objects. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know. It's it's not a great uh, not a great look. I don't think <laughs> just because uh, you don't know what what the what people are listening to or what is influencing them at the time. And so uh, it just seems like a natural thing. You wouldn't want to go out with with earbuds in unless you're taking a jog or something i guess but uh, you see it a lot i saw it this weekend that's why i was thinking about it i saw a lot of people 
in stores and in other places just in their own world with their headphones on. Yeah, it really is a strange look now that you mention it because it's almost like a strange mix of being out in public but doing things that you could just be doing when you're by yourself at home and why, why do you have to uh, do both of those things at once um, and it also takes away that sense of community that you could have with people actually interacting with people in the public instead of uh, being detached and away from each other and that could be causing some of the issues we've talked about that before too just how if everyone in a particular society is distant and detached and in his own little world uh, are people going to care to help people when the time comes? Are, are is is the well being of other people going to be anybody's concern if all we do is indulge whatever we want to do at all times? Yeah, very uh, becomes people become very desensitized to what's going on around them. I see this in my neighborhood. There's kids always waiting for the bus when I'm driving to work, and you know if I drive by, I'll usually wave, and it's amazing how they see a vehicle coming. I don't think it's just me personally. I don't think they know who I am, but it's just a vehicle. And a lot of them will purposely like turn their back and start looking at their phone huh. t- to avoid any sort of waving or hello, you know, <laughs> something like that. So I get it. I mean, you know, I'm not saying you'd, you want that they're all happy, happy waving at everybody, but at the same <laughs> time, uh, they just, they seem to very much recoil from any sort of human interaction. So well, I don't, I don't think that's a good trend. No, and what about that recent phenomenon where someone might be committing a crime in broad daylight or or beating somebody up, and what everyone does first is just pull out their phone to get a recording of it? I mean, that just shows you we're so hooked in, even even just to technology and to getting the coolest video that we can then post online for our followers, that we're not even going to step forward and actually help somebody. Those are not people uh with with feelings and and dreams and desires to us anymore they're just uh someone that we can capture on video and then put online it's a real shame when we start looking at people that way and not caring at all for our fellow man yeah so that's out in montclair california if you're out there you might have to be careful if you're walking across the street but who knows it could come to other places too speaking of california that was one of the things talked about on the trumpet daily show today with andrew loker he was hosting the program today and he talked about a, f- a couple of interesting topics, uh, including California being under a curse. They, they've, of course, had droughts and mudslides and fires and you name it. And uh, so he goes through a lot of the, the recent uh, events out there in California. And here's a related article to that. And he touched on this just briefly. It was a top story today at Fox. California has worse quality of life in the U.S., a study says. Beautiful area like that. Beaches, mountains, oceans. Worst <laughs> quality of life, though. Yeah, and it... And- like is brought up, if you can hardly afford to have a home of any kind, whether it's a one-bedroom tiny studio apartment or anything above the level of a cardboard box, it's not going to be the greatest quality of life if you're spending well over half your income on housing. Uh, Just that alone makes it a pretty miserable existence. But even then, when you, you consider a lot of policies like we talked about yesterday with marijuana legalization and uh, millions and millions of illegal immigrants, um, the fact that you can't go to a lot of places and hear your own language anymore. I mean, there are a lot of factors there that probably don't make too many people very happy. Oh, what about all the traffic, the the extreme pollution in a lot of those cities? It, it, it just adds up to where, yeah, maybe you want to go there for a week-long vacation, but uh, it doesn't seem like a place where you would just enjoy living that much. Well, it's interesting, too, even that story earlier about the 
giving people citations for distracted walking. They also want to start testing driverless cars out there. So I just had this vision of someone distracted walking across the street in a car coming up with no one driving it. Yeah. Seems like a recipe for disaster. That's for, that's for sure. Uh, they say that uh, a 2017 Harvard University report said that one-third of renters, as you mentioned, in the Los Angeles area are severely rent burdened because it's so expensive, meaning they spend at least half their income on housing. The medium rent for a one-bedroom apartment in L.A. County has increased 67%. Oh. And you know wages haven't increased like that. And it wasn't cheap before the increase of 67%. Right. Homelessness has surged to a stunning 75 uh, a stunning 75% in the last six years, according to Los Angeles Times. And there are now at least 55 homeless people in the uh, county. So that's a whole city unto itself. U.S. News ranked each state in seven other areas, which were weighted based on a survey that determined their importance to the public health care uh, education, economy, opportunity, infrastructure, crime and corrections, and fiscal stability. And so uh, California's finances are doing somewhat better in some ways. Of course, they have a general debt overall. But, uh, again, I think we talked the other day, too, about like the how many people are on food stamps and some of the other issues out there. And just the fact that they even just are openly defying the federal government in, with laws that are on the books already. I mean, if the laws are already in the books, that's the way it is. It should be. But warning people to get out of town because the ICE agents are coming or to hide, you know. And, and so it's just it's a really if, – if a person was living out there and they are a legal citizen of the U.S., I could see not being thrilled with some of those activities. Well, they've they've created a lawless culture out there on what they call the left coast because of uh, just how radical left a lot of it is. And – the Bible talks about it repeatedly. Lawbreaking doesn't bring happiness. It brings misery and destruction and death. So they're experiencing that firsthand. That's why they rank uh, dead last in quality of life. Uh, Oklahoma ranks 17th, actually, which is pretty, pretty a pretty good rating. And then fiscally, they ra- they rank uh, 22nd. So 43rd overall, but in the two most important categories, in, in my opinion, they're doing pretty well. California is uh, 32 among all U.S. states overall, and uh, but then when they factored everything in there, that's uh, where they came up with for quality of life. They're 43rd in fiscal stability, 46 in opportunity, 38 in infrastructure, and uh, they had some higher marks in healthcare, economy, crime, and corrections. But uh, so anyway, overall, that's how the, is that even possible though? When they don't even obey federal law and they're overrun by illegal aliens, how how do they have a high score in crime and corrections. I think that might just show maybe some of the the bias or maybe some of the way that they're trying to judge these things. Because, yeah, maybe they, I don't know, maybe they have good police officers, but if they're not enforcing the law in every case, they shouldn't be getting such a good score there. Yeah, those numbers might not be accurate, and we I don't know exactly what they're basing it on. But then also, as they say, maybe the chickens haven't all come home to roost. You know, there could be, a, I mean, there's a lot of potential for severe issues to break out very quickly if they haven't already because of just the the fact that you don't know who's in the state and where they are and what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So how it would be hard to sort of quantify exactly how much crime there is, I would think. Yeah, it's true. And then this article also brings out that, sure, they might rank well in terms of their economy, but so much of uh, the income of the state actually depends on the 1% paying huge amounts of taxes. The the top 1% in California pays 50% of all taxes. 
to the state. Uh, so when the stock markets go down, the, the rich who have most of the stocks are going to lose a lot of money and they're not going to be paying as much taxes. So that's, that is why even when you're looking at their economy, that's not a stable indicator right now either. And a lot of that, I think, is uh, the tech boom out there. But they said right now that the tech stocks make up 25% of the market, stock market, which is the highest since the dot-com bubble in the early, early well, I guess it was late 90s when that blew up. I can't remember exactly, but it was back then. And uh, so they're worried, again, that, that it's too high, mm-hmm. too much in the market, because tech's one of those things where it might be valuable, but it might not. It just kind of depends. You know, it's not like lumber <laughs> where you like, that's a lot of lumber. It has some value to it on some level. It, it Tech is a different animal. So if, like you said, if that if that suffers, uh, then then all those taxpayers, you know, are going to suffer. And then uh, who's going to who's going to pay for the socialist programs? Ugh, yeah, it's a it's a fickle beast out there in California. I mean, things might be nice in terms of the weather, but then they have the weather disasters that are. Uh, hitting them all over the place all the time, and uh, they just keep going farther, further, and further left, as if that's what most people want. Maybe in that state, if you include the amount of illegals. Yeah, so it's talked about even more on the Trump Daily Radio Show today. Gets into a lot of the details and a lot of why that's the case out in California and what what's going on there, and uh, some of the curses. We want to finish today talking about this top story at the Trumpet dot com. It's a write up unearthed another inspiring biblical artifact and this is uh about uh a bulla which is a little clay seal that uh, people would use to uh, seal documents and it's uh from all indications are it's from isaiah the prophet which is pretty fascinating and of course grant you've got a particularly uh uh, interesting insight on this because you were you were there meeting with her with some others when uh you guys first started talking about this so that was pretty exciting yeah, I got to be there at that meeting uh, back in October when Mr. Gerald Flurry met with Dr. Alot Mazar, and they discussed the the partnership that, uh, well, I guess it's the City of David Foundation officially that uh, works with Dr. Mazar and her archaeological projects. It's been now we're in the middle of the seventh excavation in the last twelve years, so it's been a really fruitful uh, relationship and. Basically, at that meeting back in October, they they reaffirmed their commitment to working together long term, and uh, it was just really a positive meeting. But then she had that great news about how an hour before the meeting, she got a license to dig on the OFL, which is where some of our Herbert W. Armstrong college students are digging right now. And then she also <laughs> became really secretive right after that, and, and she looked around the room for cameras and, and was wondering if there were any microphones that might pick up the conversation because she had this picture on her phone of that clay seal impression with the mark of authority of most likely the prophet Isaiah. So she wanted to show that, but she told us not to tell anyone, not even our wives. <laughs> so for four months, uh, we couldn't say anything, but it was pretty exciting. Yeah, because they have to make sure they get all the research done correctly and then present it correctly yeah, in, in the archaeology world. Uh, as a reminder, some of the things that uh, she's discovered has been uh, David's palace, Solomon's wall, Nehemiah's wall, a gold medallion with a menorah imprinted on it, and two clay seal impressions of a pair of Jewish princes who tried to have the prophet Jeremiah killed. 
And uh, in that case, of those those impressions, we had those here at Armstrong Auditorium for a while. So a lot of people got to come through and see those. It's amazing because you see the pictures of those bulla, and they look big because you see a big picture. But then when you see them in real life, they're tiny. they just little seals on a document. It'd be like, a, I guess for us today, um, people used to have a personalized uh, like sticker you put on a um, – with your address and your name and that type of thing to send out, you know, uh, I guess we don't really send letters anymore. So that, <laughs> that doesn't happen, but they were sending documents around and it would have an official seal. And so it's really interesting because there's a, a video that describes this Isaiah Bulla and goes through the, the reasoning why they think it's Isaiah the prophet. And uh, one of the points that's made is that you didn't have a seal if you were just Joe average, you were usually royalty or you were, you were a high ranking authority in some way, uh, because otherwise, uh, you just wouldn't have the same, the same sort of seals. So anytime you're finding a seal, it's usually somebody that had some importance there historically and biblically. Yeah. There's a lot of context there that would seem to add up to it being the prophet Isaiah's, uh, bulla, because it was also found just 10 feet away from the King Hezekiah's bulla and those those two have one of the strongest king prophet relationships in the entire Bible. It's uh, pretty much I think it's like fifteen at times at least that their two names are mentioned in the Bible in the same verse. Uh, so it just shows how closely they had to work together. They actually worked together to save the nation of Judah. That's a pretty huge accomplishment. Um, and the reason for that was that Hezekiah was looking to God's man. He was asking Isaiah what God thought about different situations, and then he would simply do what Isaiah told him to do That's because of God's authority coming through Isaiah. So that, that was quite a profitable relationship. And to be found 10 feet away from the King, the King Hezekiah Bulla by itself is a lot of proof, but then there's also uh, the fact that the middle line could only say Isaiah and that the, uh, the, the, the bottom line is only missing an Aleph, which is equivalent to like an apostrophe is what it looks like. And it's because the left side is smudged by a fingerprint that you don't see it on that line. But it's there's plenty of room for there to be a tiny apostrophe like Mark there. Uh, so so a lot of different factors add up to it probably being prophet the prophet Isaiah's clay seal impression. Yeah, and that's explained uh, thoroughly on the, the video at thetrumpet.com on that. And, you know, it's, uh, it's interesting too because I just – just my own curiosity, you know, I'm like, well, whose fingerprint's on there? <laughs> like, who is the one that put their finger on it? Because <laughs> that would be very interesting to know as well. Uh, and when they when they find a lot of these, uh, say, uh, a bula or something, they're tiny, like we said. And, and so you have to be really careful when they're digging. There's a lot of – we have students from Herbert W. Armstrong College over there digging right now. And you have to be careful. You know, it's not like the movies where you just – you know, hit a brick and all of a sudden you're inside this massive tomb and there's all this treasure everywhere and snakes. Uh, You have to be very careful and methodical. It's a real science in how they go about actually trying to take this this debris and the buckets of dirt and then look through it and find these these small but very valuable historical uh, artifacts. Yeah, it's more or less just about a centimeter wide and tall, this little, this tiny clay seal. It's just a little circle. And uh, this one's even smaller because there's a little piece of the top left that is cut off, which is uh, basically would have only been like a motif or a symbol, which Dr. Mazar believes is like a grazing doe. Um, so, so this this bulla is it's barely a third of an inch if that that's how small it is and that just 
that indicates why it might take so long. It was actually discovered in 2009, but by the time that you sift through every shovelful or every bucket of dirt, you're, you're really having to look closely to find tiny things like that, then brush them off so that you can actually read what's on it. Yeah, it's fascinating because you wouldn't know how valuable your dig was for years in some cases right. until until you go back later. Uh, if you don't know a lot about Dr. Mazar, she's mentioned uh, quite a bit in this article at The Trumpet. Uh, Dr. Mazar is unique in her field because she relies on the Bible as a history textbook. When she examined this particular bulla, she immediately thought it could be referring to the prophet Isaiah, even though, as mentioned, the left side is uh, damaged, and it's all mentioned there in the video, and you can see that. But uh, so, but that is what is unique about Dr. Mazar. She actually looks at the Bible as history, which it is. A lot of it is, uh, you know, at least a, uh, a large portion of it is. And so when she's over there digging, I mean, she's looking at what the Bible says and using it as a guidebook, which is, you know, the Bible is ridiculed in a lot of ways today, especially in the scientific or archaeological realm. But but she uses it, and if you look at her lists of finds, it's pretty staggering. Yeah, and it's almost it's almost like every week it seems like that more proof of the Bible is dug up from the ground in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, yet people still continue to reject every bit of proof. It just It just highlights the amount of rebellion that is in human beings naturally. If we determine that we don't want to listen to God, we're just not going to listen, and it doesn't matter uh, what evidence comes out. And in the case of Dr. Mazar, she's found some of the probably all of the greatest finds imaginable when it comes to biblical archaeology, uh, yet she is ridiculed and people do write critical hit pieces about her uh, that are totally unfair. They don't even really examine the finds themselves because you can't contradict those. They just turn to character attacks. They say, well, this person must be crazy for believing what the Bible says, even though the Bible is what directed her like a treasure map to the right spot to dig. Yeah, um, Mr. Gerald Fleury, the uh, uh, editor-in-chief of The Trumpet, he wrote this uh, right up here that's uh, featured at The Trumpet today, unearthed another inspiring biblical artifact. He, he highlights that point that you just made that a lot of people fight against these finds. And he says, what a shame. Due to their miraculous history with God, the Jews ought to be the most faith-filled people in the world. Instead, the elites cause them to doubt the accuracy of the Bible, which is a really good point. There are people that are more elite in any society, I suppose, and they, they influence a lot of people on what they think. And really, unfortunately, what they're doing is by casting doubt on the Bible, they're destroying the faith of the people. And they have such, like he points out, they have such a, an amazing history with God, but they need faith to survive, faith that would result in proper actions because they're surrounded by people that don't want them around <laughs> or even on this earth if you listen to Iran and other nations. And so, you know, if they're not going to go to God and, and look to that faith-filled history, where are they going to go? You know, they're, they're kind of running out of options. Yeah, in any nation, too, uh, the vast majority of the elites, the educated class, just completely rejects the idea that either God exists or that he has any authority in our lives. Yet, it's amazing how all the evidence that they claim to respect so much always contradicts what they're saying. It, there, it always proves that God exists and that God is in charge. And, and even just the story of Hezekiah and Isaiah, it just shows how God can actually intervene and work miracles in people's lives if they'll turn to him and trust him, despite if people uh, might ridicule. It does, God doesn't care about 
uh, some scholar's opinion. He cares about what is actually true. And even uh, beyond what this article says, there are a lot of powerful lessons in that relationship. Uh, like one time near the end of his life, Hezekiah actually uh, became enamored with the king of Babylon because the king of Babylon asked how Hezekiah's health was. And so he invited the king in and said, uh, you know, this is, this is all my treasure. And I just, he, he thought it was great to have that, that king as a friend, but then Babylon turned around and lusted after all the treasure that they saw and, and attacked Judah. So that, that was a lesson where Isaiah was saying, look, you better listen to God because you shouldn't be doing that. Hezekiah didn't listen, but the indication is that he later repented. So even there, that's uh, a parallel for us too, where we can't become too enamored with the world or with uh, physical things or trust in people who shouldn't be trusted because uh, if our ultimate trust isn't in God, then then you see what the result is from that story. Yeah, it's a great point. Those That history is, is for us today in those examples. And what's interesting too is that people here today, a lot of them will deny the finds that prove the Bible. But you know what? Years ago, they denied the actual prophets when they came. So it's the, same, it's the exact same pattern repeating itself. And of course, Christ made that point very strongly when he was on this earth. <laughs> and people did not appreciate that. <laughs> but it was the truth. He said, well, you know, I sent all these apostles and, and uh, or all these uh, uh, prophets at the time, and um, well, he killed them all. <laughs> so, you know, that's, uh, but we see the same pattern repeating itself. They, they denied the, the, when they came the first time, the actual people, and now they're denying their seals. <laughs> yeah, like Mr. Flurry says, it takes a certain level of education to achieve that much ignorance. Yeah, really great write-up. Unearthed, another inspiring biblical artifact. Make sure you check that out at the uh, trumpet.com. That's all the time we have for today here on Trumpet Radio Live. Make sure you listen for the Key of David program and the Trumpet Daily Radio Show coming up in just a bit. For Grant Turgeon and myself, Dwight Falk, have a great rest of your day. We'll talk to you tomorrow. Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG.